And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, October 10th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Basurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, everybody talks about data sharing, but do you really know how to do it? Plus, the FAR Council goes big in proposing new cybersecurity rules. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the State Department is turning to machine learning to help declassify records. The agency has used this tool now for scrubbing older diplomatic cables, and now it has its sights set on a broader set of records. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. They have a declassification tool based on machine learning. Tell us more about that one, Justin. That's right. If you go on the State Department's virtual FOIA reading room, you'll see a whole ream of records from uh, 1997 that were just released late last month. Old diplomatic cables, a report from the embassy in Sofia detailing discord in the Bulgarian Socialist Party, or an, an internal summary of Secretary of State Madeleine Albright's visit with President Nelson Mandela in South Africa. And those cables are now 25 years old, so they're subject to being released, even though they were once classified. They are notable because they were declassified using a machine learning tool that the agency developed internally. And then these cables were not subject to any FOIA requests, but state officials determined they could be publicly released through the proactive disclosure provision of FOIA. So state officials are calling it the first ever proactive disclosure of previously classified records using machine learning. So something of a big step there. Well, are there records of that age that have to stay classified and this machine learning tool is able to distinguish by reading them in some manner, quote unquote? That's correct. And deciding. That's right. That's what's so important about this tool. Normally, it is humans that that go through these old cables and decide, yes, that could be declassified or no, it should stay classified. This tool that the State Department developed was trained on years of those human decisions, and it kind of spits out either a yes, it should be declassified, no, it should stay classified, or, or a maybe to refer to a human decision there. Eric Stein is Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Office of Global Information Services, and he talked about how accurate this machine learning tool has become. After trial and error, we were able to see that we were able to train a machine learning model with a human foundation of knowledge to be 97% as accurate as humans were. And some of those 3% issues weren't even review decisions. They were actually data quality issues or other challenges. Interesting. So they tried it on a small set, relatively speaking, of diplomatic cables. And now they want to broaden it to greater declassification. I mean, there's a declassification schedule for lots of records, some of them much longer than cables, I think, are big, huge documents. So what comes next here? They're actually looking at expanding this to its, uh, it's the State Department's central repository of emails. Of co- course, there are both unclassified emails and then there are classified emails. They, they have them in a searchable central repository dating back to 2017, Stein said. And they're looking at bringing those up to somehow be you know, shirts through using a machine learning tool. There's a big push to really overhaul declassification efforts using technology writ large. This has been something that, you know, the Information Security Oversight Office at NARA has pointed out for for a really long time. Uh, This is something that the Public Interest Declassification Board has been calling for for a really long time. There's just this huge 
avalanche of classified records out there with all the digital records that now exist. And folks have been saying that they need to use technology to really start searching through them because humans just can't possibly keep up. Here's what Stein said about that. These are proactive steps that we're taking with technology to increase transparency at our agency and work that could be done at other agencies as well if they have the technology and ability to do so. I think it's crucial that you've pointed out this is not simply a keyword search program, but it actually takes into account what people have decided over the years. And what do they plan next in their declassification push here? They are looking at applying this to things like email. This tool only cost them about $400,000 to develop, uh, according to Stein. He, he said that's you know much more cost efficient than hiring dozens of people to actually do this work instead. He also acknowledged that there's going to be challenges when you try to move to different types of data beyond the kind of pretty simple rote diplomatic cable. We're seeing ways of expanding what we learned from this cable project to emails and other types of records. It comes down to focusing on a specific set of data, records that have data standards that the technology can use to sort and identify. And it gets more challenging as we look at different record types, you know, whether it be PDFs, photos, JPEGs, videos. We start looking at all these different types of records that are out there. The technology starts to struggle a little bit. Right. The unstructured data, I guess, is the problem for these types of algorithms. And so will AI then and machine learning go beyond the classification realm to other areas of state? Yeah, they're also looking at using this as part of the FOIA process. There's a couple different angles to to this. We mentioned how they released those declassified records uh, using the proactive disclosure provision of FOIA. And they're also trying to use AI at state uh, as part of the broader FOIA process to help handle the initial intake of requests, perhaps by telling the requester those records that they're seeking have actually already been released. Or maybe they need to clarify the request somehow to either, you know, clarify the scope of the request. Uh, and then also using AI as part of the records search process to search across, you know, a central repository of emails for responsive records to a FOIA requests. So, you know, agency FOIA programs have struggled with limited resources, just like declassification efforts to keep up with all these different requests. There were a record number of requests last year, for instance, and there's an expanding set of electronic records they have to look through. There's at least a few different agencies out there that are looking at using some flavor of AI as part of FOIA, and state, the State Department is one of them. And this will then augment the FOIA staff, but by no means replace any of the members of that staff. The way that folks are describing it from what I've heard is you, you can't afford to cut FOIA staff. You just need to augment them somehow because it's hard to hire more. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks so much. All right, you got it, Tom. Be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the FAR Council goes big in proposing new cybersecurity rules. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Almost everything the government buys in the future could look like cybersecurity with some other product attached. If new proposed rules from the Federal Acquisition Regulation Council take effect early next year, that's more a matter of when than if, anyhow. Attorney Townsend Bourne, a partner at Shepard Mullen, has read the proposed rules, and she joins me now with some expert analysis. Ms. Bourne, good to have you with us. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Now, these are comprehensive rules. I mean, they really originated in Homeland Security, fair to say, but they are put forth because that's the official 
official channel is the uh, FAR Council. That's right. These two proposed rules actually stem from an executive order that we got in May of 2021 from the Biden administration. So they're they're over two years in the works, but we've been expecting them now for, for a while and they've got a lot in them. Yeah, and there's a couple of different parts to them. And let's start with the threat incident and reporting information sharing part of that. What would that entail and on whom would it be a requirement? So this proposed rule is meant to target procurements that relate to information and communications technology, even though the proposed rule contemplates that the new FAR provisions are going to be in all solicitations and contracts. It's really targeting that ICT product and service procurement. So there is a little bit of a narrowing here, although the the new clauses we're going to start seeing in all solicitations and contracts once the rules go final. The main part of this really is that incident reporting and cyber threat sharing. The incident reporting requirement in the proposed rule is an eight-hour reporting requirement. So within eight hours of discovery of a security incident, the FAR Council would like contractors to report and then provide updates every 72 hours. And this would be if the contractor itself is experiencing the breach. That's correct. The the proposed rule provides a definition of security incident. So that will be the, the parameters that will be used to determine whether or not that incident reporting requirement kicks in. And there's a little subtlety here I wanted to ask you about. One is sometimes the government buys ICT products. It buys communications and technology directly. But often the ICT, the information and communications technology, is integral to the delivery of some other product, say a VA buying this electronic record system. Well, you're buying a database and you're buying some software applications, a lot of them, but none of it works without the ICT underlying it. So how extensively will this go across the board here? It's a great question. I think that's something that's going to need to be ironed out during the public comment period. The background information within the proposed rule has some broad language that this would apply to any contracts where ICT is used in performance of the contract, in addition to where ICT products are being sold to the government. There is a little bit of a qualifier in the security incident reporting provision, which talks about ICT products and services that are provided to the government. So there's a bit of an ambiguity there that I think is going to need to be worked out because that word used obviously is quite broad. Sure. And there are also definitions you're reporting in here for Internet of Things devices and operational technology OT, which crosses over. There's a merger at some edge anyway of IOT and operational technology and then telecom equipment telecom services and security incident, everybody's got to relearn what these are. That's exactly right. This is the first time we're seeing a definition for Internet Internet of Things devices in the FAR. We've had some guidance out of NIST on treatment and cybersecurity for Internet of Things, but we haven't seen it embedded into a FAR clause yet, so this will be new. Then the incident reporting regime, is that the main part of what these rules are all about? So you would think so. It is the main impetus for this rule, I believe. There are also a lot of sections that talk about supporting incident response, which will require contractors to do a lot on the front end, both to preserve data 
before and after a security incident. But there's also requirements now for an SBOM, which is a software bill of materials that contractors will be required to maintain for all software used in performance of the contract, at least the way the proposed rule is written right now. There are also um, requirements to allow more access by certain agencies like CISA and the FBI to contractor systems after an incident and even before an incident when cyber threat indicators are shared. We're speaking with Townsend Bourne. She's a partner at the law firm Shepard Mullen. And so this really gets to beyond the arm's length relationship that government has with contractors. It sounds like there is a mechanism by which they can check to see if a contractor has what the government considers acceptable protections place. Is that fair to say? I think that's right. We're seeing some of the government access rights really spelled out in this proposed rule. I think contractors have gotten used to the idea that the government can come in and perform audits as a general matter. But here we're actually seeing those audit rights and investigation rights spelled out pretty clearly. What has been reaction that you've had from clients so far? I mean, what are people, this has been out less than a couple weeks, they've got until December, I think, to comment, industry or anyone that wants to comment, but what's the initial reaction look like to you? I think people are still trying to wrap their arms around this one. Both of the proposed rules are over 100 pages, so I'm not sure how many people are brave enough to, to dive into the whole thing, so we're trying to distill and make sure we understand the proposed applicability to help our clients understand the proposed rules and understand what comments they might want to put in. And what about CMMC? This is not related to CMMC, but it has a kind of animating idea behind it similar to CMMC, and that is you have to have a certain amount of chops in being able to detect things and report things that not all companies, frankly, have until the ransomware shuts down their data. What's the government fundamentally trying to get at here, do you think? Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's, it'll be interesting to help clients implement this in, in conjunction with CMMC, which obviously we've been working on for a while now. CMMC revolves around types of information. So the cybersecurity required of contractors really depends on the type of government information they're going to have in their systems. This new proposed rule focuses more, like we've been saying, on information and communications technology. So it's not focused on the information per se, it's focused on the technology. So that's going to be a bit of a challenge, I think, when contractors are implementing compliance plans. It's a little bit of a mental shift from what we've been doing with CMMC. There's also another detail I wanted to ask you about, something that has been in discussion in the government at least 30 years, literally, and that is IP version 6 implementation. Contractors are going to be required to complete Internet Protocol version 6 implementation activities, whatever that means. They reference a 2020 memo, but I can find a 1990 memo referring to IP version 6. Right, right. Yeah, I think this is something the government's trying to been trying to get out for a while. So we've seen contracts in the past that incorporate agency policy and guidance trying to implement IP version 6. So this is something that I think we knew was coming. I wasn't necessarily expecting to see it in this proposed rule, but it's it's not totally surprising. All right. And then there's going to be some new contract clauses to FAR Part 39 you have written out here. And so there's a lot of mechanism and a lot of, I guess, bureaucracy connected with this in terms of the, what the FAR is adding. That's right. A significant add is going to be a new representation provision. So this has been a way the government has 
tried to ensure compliance by making contractors check the box and represent and certify that they're doing certain things. This new proposed rule has a representation provision that will require offerors at the time they're putting in their proposals to represent that they've submitted current, accurate, and complete security incident reports under all of their existing government contracts, which is is a pretty broad, it's a new one for us, and also a representation regarding flowing down these provisions to their subcontractors. Right. So there is a lot of, I guess, potential here for False Claims Act activities somewhere down the line. That's exactly right. And interestingly, the, the background in the proposed rules does specifically say that these requirements are going to be material to government payments, which is basically taking a page out of the False Claims Act. Sure. And then do these basically apply then to people that are not dealing with classified systems because people dealing in the classified world probably already have a lot of this in place? I think that's right. It's more targeted to the unclassified world and it will apply to commercial product and services procurements as well. So they're they're trying to catch some of the contractors that I think are not, you know, in the traditional space for government contracting and they're going to have to understand and implement some of these new requirements. Boy, this is going to really drive people to other transaction authority buys if they can get away with it. And just a final question, you've made a distinction here also that there are rules for whether the contractor is using cloud computing and whether it's using its own data centers. That's right. So the second proposed rule really gets at contractors that are operating what we now have a definition for, which is federal information systems. And it actually builds in for contractors that are operating cloud systems for the government, a requirement that they be FedRAMP authorized. FedRAMP is the federal government's program for security for cloud service providers. So that's now going to be built into the FAR. So there's some old cleaning up they're kind of doing here as well as breaking new ground. I think that's right. FedRAMP's been a program since 2011. It was just codified um, via statute at the end of last year. So I think, yes, it's been 10 years in the making, but now it's it's finally becoming part of the regulations. All right. Townsend Bourne is a partner at the law firm Shepard Mullen. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her blog at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the situation in Congress is probably worse than you think. But first, everyone talks about data sharing, but do you really know how to do it? This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Data. Every agency generates it. Data is best used when it's shared, combined for new insights and applications. But data sharing is not as simple as it sounds. New research from the industry-supported Center for Data Innovation outlines six possible strategies for sharing your data. We get more now from the director of the Center for Data Innovation, Daniel Castro. Dan, good to have you back. Good to be here. All right. Well, tell us about this research because data sharing is a term that's used glibly and frequently. Let's share data. We need better data sharing. If we knew this, if we shared this data, we'd have this application. But tell us about some of the subtleties you have outlined in a new white paper about data sharing. Well, what we tried to do here is is really outline how as much as we talk about the importance of data 
you know, the United States is still so far behind in terms of actually creating this you know, rich data ecosystem where the right data can get to the right person at the right time. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And some of it is kind of societal and, and social, and some of it's really technical and economic. And so in this paper that we put out, we really try and go through and look at where the barriers are right now today in terms of why we aren't sharing data as much as we could be or probably should be to get use of all of this information that's out there, and then what we can do to start addressing those problems. Often, federal agencies state that it is statutory prohibitions on this agency sharing data with that agency. That's the problem. But if the law doesn't say you can't, then it strikes me that, well, you can. Well, that's one of the issues that comes up again and again. I mean, there are some specific laws that say you can't share certain data and that becomes an issue. There's also just a reluctance on the part of many government agencies to share data in many cases or to sometimes collect data that they might otherwise be able to collect from either the private sector or industry. And this isn't always personal information that we're talking about. Sometimes this is sensor data. It's business data. It's, it's other data that's out there that has just enormous positive social value. And we need to have somebody creating the technical infrastructure and the economic incentives to allow this data sharing to happen. All right. And you also have outlined like six basic regimes for data sharing or six strategies, I guess you'd call them. Maybe briefly, what are they? Sure. So the first one is fixing these data protection laws we have to reduce these legal barriers. So just get that out of the way. Most of the laws were written at a time when there wasn't a lot of data collection going on. You know, if you go back to 1974, the Privacy Act for the federal government, you know, these laws were intended for kind of small data where there was a little bit of data collected and we knew we didn't want to share all that data back out. That's changed. You know, now many agencies are collecting data. They should be collecting more data. And it's often good that they can share data across agency boundaries. And that's right now where there's a lot of barriers in Europe and other places. They have this idea of collect once where you don't have to have the individual or business submit data multiple times. So that's one area. Another issue is trying to figure out if we can create some model data sharing contracts in these different sectors like healthcare or financial services, where we want to have the government encourage more data sharing. They can pave the way by basically handing a legal document out to the private sector and saying, if you want to share data under these existing laws, here's how you can do it. So just lowering those barriers. There's also, if you think about from the consumer side, every year I get a notice from my bank or credit card saying, this is how we protect your privacy. And if you don't want to share data, here's how you can opt out. You get lots of those notices. You get those at the doctor's office. You never get the opposite notice saying, hey, if you want to share data for research, for other kind of beneficial purposes, here's a reminder of how you can share data. If you want to donate your data, here's how you can do that. So we need to kind of flip the mental model about how we're approaching this. And it's not that everyone has to share their data. It's that it can be voluntary and it can go either way. Some people don't want to share their data. Some people do. Let's give them the choice and let's empower them. So there's a number of areas like that. And, you know, I'll just mention also, you know, data standards and particularly high impact areas. This is something that's really hard to do. I mean, it's an area where government can do a lot to really streamline how data sharing occurs because so much of this is just being put on the private sector. But we're ultimately talking about a public interest. And that's where the government can help make sure we're investing to its potential. We're speaking with Daniel Castro, director of the Center for Data Innovation, 
part of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. And could it be, though, that there's maybe a technical problem here, and that is very often people want to share or agencies want to share data, but they don't want the personally identifiable part of it to be shared. And there are methodologies and technologies that can anonymize data. Could it be that that's just not simply a widely enough adopted discipline, and therefore it gets in the way of sharing the rest of the data, which might be all you really need? That's right. There's a lot of technical solutions, whether it's anonymizing data or doing federated learning, where instead of collecting all the data in one central place and doing the analytics, you do the analytics where the data is stored and then just bring in the results so that you never have to give up that personal information or have it leave a device or an agency. There's a number of technical solutions and a lot of federal agencies don't have those expertise in-house or there's just reluctance to do it because if they do it, they're kind of taking on a risk. What if we do it incorrectly? And so, you know, there's this kind of reluctance to do anything in, in that space. And that's where we're saying, you know, we need to keep pushing and we need to make it clear that this is the expectation that agencies share data and address these problems. And you can't just kind of hide behind these outdated rules and regulations. And what about the question of data literacy? Because very often to get a result you want, you need a data expert to tell you, well, this is the data you actually need, whereas someone that just knows what their outcome is desired may not really understand the data implications of getting to that outcome. That's right. I think it's underappreciated how important data is to solving different problems, whether it's in you know something like education, where there are so many different initiatives that are out there. And, you know, a simple question is, are these initiatives effective? You know, you need to know if you do a intervention in preschool or an intervention to provide free lunches in middle school, you know, what does that mean in terms of outcomes 10 years down the road? That takes enormous amount of data collection because you have to link somebody receiving this intervention in middle school to 10 years down the road when they're in a workforce database. Or maybe you're looking at the impact it has on prison and the judicial system. There's so many interactions here, and there's so much that we should be gleaning from all these different programs to see what's effective and what's not. Let's have a well-functioning government. And you need data to do all that. And that takes data literacy, that takes skills. And you know, data literacy is on both sides of that equation, right? It's data literacy in the government so that they're thinking about how to use this. It's also data literacy just in our communities so that we understand why data is being collected about us and how it's coming back to help us in the end. And the result of all the barriers and the alphabetically named prohibitions like HIPAA. I mean, HIPAA gets spread on things like peanut butter, and it's probably not nearly as dangerous a prohibition as it's made out to be, but that's where we are. What that's all led to is agencies simply reluctant to share their data because it's mine and not yours. Is that also part of the issue? And I think you addressed that in the paper. That is. I mean, so many of these laws are out there, and there's not good guidance on even when a law like HIPAA, which allows data sharing, it's still mostly seen as a law that doesn't enable data sharing. And that's what the average person knows. That's what the average person in government thinks as well. And it's it's almost like a, a game of telephone where, you know, the lawmakers originally wrote the law saying you could do some data sharing, but, you know, there's all these restrictions and then people just kept repeating the restrictions. And now the end result is if you have health data, your main concern is how do I not get fined for violating HIPAA? And that's the model. And, and that's where, you know, we have to really think about what's the end goal. It's not just protecting patients' privacy, it's also protecting patients, giving them better health care. And the only way to do that is by figuring out 
which interventions are effective and how we can, you know, recall dangerous drugs quickly and, and do all these things that you do with data. Well, it's a great paper and I commend people to read it. Daniel Castro is director of the Center for Data Innovation. That's part of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that paper at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the situation in Congress is probably worse than you think. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. The bizarre stalemate in Congress is probably bad politically, but it might be even worse for the government itself. It increases the possibility that the continuing resolution, set to expire November 17th, only postponed a government shutdown. For what this all looks like from inside and under the dome, we turn to WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And Mitchell, we should point out that you have been putting in really long hours as a congressional reporter. It is just chaotic. I mean, how would you describe it up there? It is chaotic, and I know people have been using the term Capitol Hill chaos, but it really is. I can never remember any time like this where everybody is just pointing fingers at each other. People within the Republican Party are super mad at each other. There was a conversation I had recently with a Capitol Police officer as I was coming in, and she said a staffer turned to her and said, can we just have a day where we don't make history? (laughs) (laughs) Like normal people. Right. So, you know, this really is an unprecedented time. Obviously, there had never been a motion to vacate that was successfully carried out. And the fact that the House is literally paralyzed right now is really remarkable when you think about the fact that just early last week, House Republicans were starting to hopefully grind away on some of these appropriations bills. They were doing something as simple as addressing the energy and water development bill that was going to come up. And then all of a sudden, everything just exploded. And because of the rules, of course, with the House, you cannot actually legislate at all until you have a leader. So while we were having all these preparations potentially for a government shutdown recently, including some of the Senate and House committees canceling hearings because they were worried that the government was going to be shut down. Well, effectively, part of the government, at least on this side of the Capitol, was shut down because uh, they couldn't decide on who would be the next House Speaker. What was it that uh, Senator Robert Byrd once said, the House doesn't matter, but, you know, maybe it does. (laughs) We (laughs) do have two chambers. Right. You often will talk to senators and there will be a little bit of eye rolling kind of at this group on the uh, House side, of course. The discussion always goes back to the days when, whether it's apocryphal or not, that President George Washington and and Thomas Jefferson were discussing the fact that pouring a little bit of hot tea into the saucer and, and they were like, what are you doing? And well, actually, I pour the hot tea on the saucer to let it cool. And the Senate is supposed to let things cool. But when you don't have any legislation actually moving over to the Senate, the Senate is kind of stalled, too. They're just doing their usual thing with nominations and, and going through speeches. So it's really an odd time here in the Capitol where we're just kind of frozen in time, if you will, until House Republicans actually decide on what they're going to do this week. Yeah, it's looking more and more like the House of Commons, sounding like the House of Commons with the House of Lords. You know, there's where you get the tea poured. Now, the Republicans are going to meet today. Is there any prospect that they will get organized and find a speaker? 
Well, it's interesting. So last week, a lot of things started to come together. Of course, you have Jim Jordan, the Ohio congressman who's the head of the Judiciary Committee, going up against Steve Scalise, the House Majority Leader. And it sounds like what they're going to do is try to initially get a little bit of coalescence around who is likely to get the most votes over this next day or two with these closed-door meetings. And then the hope is that they will, by Wednesday, actually have some type of internal vote. But, of course, all of this is subject to all kinds of things within the Republican conference. And there's really no guarantee exactly when a vote will begin on a House speaker actually on the House floor. A lot of people initially assumed that would take place on Wednesday, that, you know, that would be possible. But that would be sort of the best case scenario for the GOP right now. It could be later in the week. And then, of course, we just don't know how many votes it's going to take. Both candidates, Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise, have a pretty significant number of supporters, you know, around 100 or so. But, of course, you need 218 to actually get elected. So we're going to have to see, are we going to return to January where we had 15? votes before Kevin McCarthy was ultimately elected. And then within the conference, they're still debating whether or not they should change the rules so that a single lawmaker can't necessarily, as Matt Gates of Florida did, make the motion to vacate and then essentially boot the uh, Speaker of the House out of his position. Yeah, that wrecker of happy homes. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, WTOP's Capitol Hill correspondent. Meanwhile, the prospect of the shutdown, which was narrowly averted, still killed some committee meeting momentum and they've got to kind of reorganize to get the machinery for everything else that would happen normally had there not been a shutdown or had they not figured there'd be a shutdown. Right. And you figure we're we're really careening from crisis to crisis right now because it just seems like we barely got through that moment where they passed the short-term spending plan and we got some time bought until November 17th, as you pointed out. But now that's only just over a month away. And I think if anything, the chances of another shutdown I believe, are actually increasing at this point because there's no guarantee that the Republican Party at this point can really get together. And they're talking a lot about trying to cross with conservatives and moderates and other parts of the party. But there is still that hardline group that hasn't really changed. And so when push comes to shove, I think we're going to have another major showdown in November. And we'll have to see what happens after that, because obviously there hasn't been a lot of progress, as I mentioned, related to the appropriations bill. They certainly are not going to be able to mow those down and get 12 appropriations bills ready in time. So I think we're just going to have another huge clash here on Capitol Hill. Lots of rocky roads ahead. And it keeps getting called a Republican meltdown. But if you look at the mechanics, they have a four-seat majority. But eight of the seats voted with the rest of the Democrats, which gave the Democrats the four-seat majority. And that's what happened with the vote. So really, the Democrats are kind of getting off scot-free, but four of them could have voted for McCarthy. Absolutely. And there was a lot of talk, as you know, in the weeks ahead before the potential shutdown earlier about whether or not there would be some kind of crossing of the aisles and some of the more moderate Democrats would go along with the Republicans and try to save Kevin McCarthy. But it quickly became clear in the hours running up to that infamous vote that the Democrats were not going to do that. Now, of course, the Republicans point a finger at the Democrats and say, look, if you really wanted to save the institution of the U.S. House, you would have taken some 
some kind of action along those lines. And of course, both parties are always partisan, but it is interesting to see this back and forth and the fact that although there are groups like the problem solvers and other more centrist groups, they've really been kind of pushed aside, even though they tried to make some of these moves, as you mentioned, they really have less power in some respects than they used to have. And it's really amazing how as few as eight members of Congress can wield this much power. All right. We have discussed the prospect for a budget being established even by that deadline, and that's not looking very good. Anything else that's going on? I mean, there's a federal pay raise that is a part of the discussion here. Right. A military pay raise and, and so on. Yeah. So all of those issues that were brought up during the debate prior to the potential shutdown are still there. You know, the fact that the pay raise is there, as you mentioned, the fact that Kevin McCarthy himself said one of the reasons that he decided to do what he did with that short term measure was because of the military and concerns about military personnel not getting paid. None of those issues have gone away. And so we're going to be right back to square one, I think. And then, as you well know, this whole appropriations process is just really broken. The Republicans have tried to get back to regular order, but really they tried to get back to regular order in about a week, as opposed to taking six weeks off during the summer. So that was clearly not going to happen. And then, you know, you look historically... Congress has not passed 12 appropriations bills since 1996. And in fact, Congress, since we've gone to the more modern age, if you will, under the 1974 Congressional Budget Act, there's only been four times that they've done this on time. And that goes, again, all the way back to the mid-90s. So something has to change. I don't know exactly what. Some people have floated the idea of going to an appropriations year that actually matches the calendar year that you don't always hit up on this October 1st date and then get into these arguments over continuing resolutions. But there is no doubt, and lawmakers will say this themselves, that the real appropriations program here is busted. Wow. And just a quick couple of questions with international implications. One is the Ukraine question then becomes totally up in the air because there was no, even in the CR, there was nothing for Ukraine. And the Pentagon has a few months of dollars left to keep supplying Ukraine. And then the border, (laughs) there's money for a wall that bizarrely now will be built by the Biden administration. These are also deeply unresolved issues. Absolutely. And they are only going to get more intensified as we move ahead. You take Ukraine, for example, We knew that Ukrainian aid support was probably going to start weakening over a period of time, but it's really accelerated quite a bit now, especially in connection with everything that's happening, as we've just talked about with the House GOP. You have a a House Speaker candidate in Jim Jordan who has made it very clear he does not want more aid for Ukraine. There's already a lot of nervousness on the Senate side, particularly about whether or not this supplemental that the White House has asked for of $24 billion, is that now in danger? And even though the majority of lawmakers, I think, in the House and Senate actually support more aid for Ukraine, again, because you have this vocal group and a lot of people pushing back against it, that is going to be a huge fight. And then you had this major reversal in connection with the southern border by the White House this past week. Uh, a lot of people 
on the Republican side are saying, we told you so. And the White House trying to explain it uh, has had a little bit of difficulty doing that. But there is no doubt that is going to be a huge issue because it's already one of the top priorities of the House Speaker's race, that the top candidates, whoever comes out on top on this, is going to be making sure that there is more resources, that more attention to the southern border. And you're already seeing reaction now from the White House, many Republicans saying, finally, and some of them saying part of this is because so many migrants have been set to urban areas across the country and major cities and blue areas of the country are now really struggling with this. And of course, how all of this affects Israel and the House's response there will leave to another day. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much and stay safe up there in case they start throwing things. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Zoom, Teams, WebEx, whichever platform your agency uses, it does create a record. New guidance from the National Archives and Records Administration is going to help you manage all those planning meetings, presentations, and blab fests. For more on the bulletin and how agencies should archive those records, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke with NARA's Chief Records Officer, Lawrence Brewer. It relates directly to a strategic plan goal that we have in our current strategic plan to issue more guidance around emerging technologies And collaboration coming out of the pandemic was a key issue as agencies were working together using all kinds of collaboration platforms. So the bulletin is really an attempt to define what a collaboration platform actually is and describe the kinds of records that are created on collaboration platforms and give agencies a little bit of guidance of what the records management implications are for managing those records that we all as agency employees are creating when we're collaborating using these tools. Imagine this is more complicated than people realize because if you're doing a meeting and everything's voice, right, there's no, it's video. Is that a record? If, if I put something in the chat and uh, post a link or post some comments or, or something in the chat, is that a record? I'm sure those people maybe don't realize how complicated it can be. It is complicated, and we are creating different types of records now that we're using these tools you know, in, in more complex and new ways. And ultimately, the decisions that agencies need to make comes back to the definition of what a record is and how we're using the information that we're creating. So if it supports decisions that we're making when we're collaborating in these platforms, then it needs to be managed as a record. Uh, Other types of artifacts that we're creating in these platforms, like video recordings and chat related to the video recordings, are also discussed as part of what we reviewed in the bulletin, and we're trying to provide some guidance around those types of records, too. Whenever a bulletin like this comes out, what's the next steps for you to educate and, and inform and get the word out to agencies to say, hey, next time you're on Teams, hey, next time you're on Zoom, next time you're on WebEx, and there's probably 10 other ones I've missed, don't forget that you need to do this. The bulletin and the, and the policies that we issue is really the, the beginning point of a process for us. Outreach is critically important to what we do. We spend a lot of time talking about what we've issued at conferences like 930.gov, at our uh, bi-monthly bridge meetings where we meet with agencies, Federal Records Management Council meetings we have with uh, departmental records officers. Uh, but we also take the policies and bake it into the training that we offer for all agency records officers out of our records management training program. And, of course, to the extent that we can incorporate requirements in 
new regulations. We're always looking to revise our regulations to make them aligned and consistent with what we're doing in the bulletins. But it's really our first step in terms of like getting the word out. And uh, we have always, you know, looked to expand and increase the, the mechanisms by which we communicate. One of the reasons why we use Records Express, our blog post, to really publish information about the kinds of things that we're doing so we can broaden awareness within the records community and with the public. A lot more to talk about that because I know collaboration platforms with hybrid work, there's a lot of people who are interested. I uh, want to shift to another bulletin that's maybe further, further down the road, which is around social media. You mentioned uh, at the 930Gov conference just that something was in the works. What, can you tell us about that? Thinking behind it, you'd met with some agencies as well to kind of get their take on it. Offer me maybe at a high level, what are, what's the initial thinking about the social media bulletin? The work that we're doing on social media tracks the same NARA strategic plan objective where collaboration is um, discussed and it has to do with emerging technologies and social media is a key area where we want to issue more guidance, learn more about what agencies are doing with social media records, and update the guidance that we previously issued in 2013, which was a white paper on social media, which was really uh, our first attempt to sort of define what the platforms are, what the implications are for agencies managing their social media records. So what we have done this year is we engaged with 10 agencies to, to do a social media assessment, which is sort of like a topical engagement to um, interview, review, assess documentation that those agencies have around managing social media records. And it will cover, uh, you know, sort of like the basics of the programs themselves, but will definitely call out and identify certain types of social media that agencies are managing and discuss how they are doing it. And the goal of the assessment is to really for NARA to learn from the agencies about what they're doing. And then we expect that we will be issuing some, some follow-up guidance that will include some requirements for agencies, um, which will reflect what we already have in NARA's regulations, sort of extend those guidelines to the specifics of social media management. Imagine the challenge with social media is the changing environment that happens. Something like you know, Facebook is big and then Twitter becomes big and now now it's LinkedIn, everyone's using LinkedIn and, and then all of a sudden you have things like TikTok which becomes a whole s series of problems. How are you managing the, the quick changing? The, how, how, do you, how are you ensuring that you guys are agile when it comes to these policies? Or maybe generally speaking, it's easier to add a new social media platform than take out and what's the balance you're striking? Yeah, I mean, we always want to try and, and stay ahead of the curve, but it's it's difficult when you're issuing guidance because you need to really learn what's going on. So you don't want to get too far ahead. You want to make sure that the guidance that you're issuing is based on real experiences that, that agencies are having. And I think our approach in the past is, is to try and be, to the greatest extent that we can, technology agnostic and really focus on the records that are produced in a lot of the tools. So regardless of the platform or the tool or the service, the requirement is still there for agencies to manage the records that are being created and whatever tool that they are using. And I think what we need to learn is what are some of the barriers, what are some of the obstacles that may be tied into some of these tools that are affecting the proper management of federal records. And I think that's what we're trying to learn out of the assessment. And we hope that by building awareness that those can be challenges, that it will help agencies 
be a little bit more aware of the kinds of tools that they're going to use and so that they can be sure that they can manage the records coming out of them. I know that the challenge of social media has been ongoing. Generally speaking, do you get a sense that agencies are managing the records fairly well through these social media channels, these, these platforms, or, or is it, I know we've been using social media now for it feels like a decade, but is, how do we measure that? that effectiveness. We have a couple of tools where we can gather data on how well agencies are doing. We have our annual reporting where we have a records management self-assessment where we ask questions about social media records. Um, and we do have feedback that you know agencies understand that you know these are important records, they are accounts that need to be managed. Um, and through the assessment, we have learned from a number of agencies that have social media programs where they are building in the kinds of controls that need to be there. And, you know, it's like any other type of complex electronic record. Implementation and operations always the challenge. The policy and the requirements are all clear. I think agencies understand what the requirements are. It's making sure that the controls are, are baked in to the tools and the processes and the procedures that have agencies have in place around managing these records. And that's what we work with agencies on, making sure that they understand, you know, if they pick this tool, they've got to make sure those records management controls are in place. Particularly if we're looking at accounts that might have permanent records, they're senior officials, we want to make sure that those records are well managed. And I think agencies understand that. It's getting it done, I think, is always the challenge. Lawrence Brewer is chief records officer for the National Archives and Records Administration, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 